From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from Dublin today is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and of course, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we are speaking with Dan Sadler, Vice President for UK Low Carbon Solutions at Equinor. Equinor is, of course, a giant in the global energy sector and is taking a prominent role in the development of the international hydrogen economy with high-profile investments in a number of large-scale production projects in major markets such as the UK. Dan has spent the better part of a decade focused on how to leverage hydrogen's potential as a fuel for the energy transition, and we are excited to have him with us to discuss how Equinor is deploying hydrogen technologies and how he and Equinor expect hydrogen to play a role in a decarbonized energy future. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, well, Patrick, looks like it's just you and I for the uh, top and tails of this episode, as it were. Firstly, still in Dublin, how are things? How's life in Ireland? Uh, good. We survived the heat wave, so that's a good start. And uh, yeah, back to back to some level of reasonable summer normalcy. So what about you, Andrew? How's, uh, how's the East Coast treating you? Uh, it's sweltering here. Uh, so I guess in some ways uh, similar to the heat wave, although in Washington, it's that's uh, pretty much par for the course for the summer. I uh, did a little uh, blacksmithing course this past weekend, which I can fill you in on a later later date, which uh, made it even hotter over the weekend. So there's that, you know, standard standard weekend activities. This is it, the next career. So, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a side hustle. Yeah, for sure. Just, uh, you know, if you watch enough Forged in Fire, you become a natural blacksmith, or at least that's, that's my game plan here. <laughs> I'll take I'll take your word for that one. Yeah, fair enough. So, all right. So we'll count you out for the next uh, the next uh, round of uh, bladesmithing. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll see how the first uh, the first round comes out before I commit to joining the second round. How about that? <laughs> Well, in uh, continuing our, you know, turning turning to the hydrogen focus of the podcast here, Patrick, continuing with our theme of energy majors uh, coming on to talk about hydrogen, we have uh, Equinor joining us. I wonder if you uh, had some pre-interview thoughts uh, around uh, what we're going to talk about here today. Yeah, so so we're going to be joined by uh, Dan Sadler, who's the VP for UK Low Carbon Solutions uh, from Equinor. And I think, uh, I think we're going to get an interesting insight probably into some of the strategy at play for Equinor and in looking at both kind of the, the green and blue uh, pathway solutions, but also the geographies of, and areas of focus for Equinor uh, going forward. So, yeah, going to be an interesting one and, uh, and a little bit of insight on some uh, interesting projects that are probably upcoming. Well, that sounds pretty exciting to me. I'm excited to hear what you and Chris had to talk to Dan about. So let's uh, let's jump right into it, and uh, I'll catch you on the back side of this interview. Well, Dan, it's fantastic to have you with us on the show today. Would you mind uh, introducing yourself to our listeners and telling them a little bit about uh, your role within Equinor and what Equinor does for those who may not have heard of Equinor? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so thanks for having me on the show, uh, Chris and Patrick. Delighted to be here. Um, I'm Dan Sadler, and I'm the Vice President for UK Low Carbon Solutions at Equinor, and that basically means that uh, hydrogen and CCS in the UK generally comes under my remit. Equinor, for those who are less familiar, we were a traditional oil and gas company, actually, we're still um, over 60% state-owned out in Norway, uh, but we're a global energy company. Um, we are uh, transitioning to uh, a broader energy company. We are the only commercial CCS operator in Europe, operating Sleipner and Schnorvitz since '98 and 2008, respectively. And we're also a growing wind major. For example, we're building the world's biggest wind farm at Doggerbank with our partners SSE and ENI. And we also built the world's first floating wind farm up at Highwind Tampa. So uh, that's me. 
Fantastic. And uh, maybe just for our listeners, um, something that is quite interesting is that Equinor as a business is involved in both blue and green hydrogen. Um, can you explain why the sort of interest in both and how you see them working together? So I think um, what we're interested in is is creating a low carbon hydrogen economy. And um, I mean, I've spent just over half my career, which is over 10 years now, looking at, at how you generate a low carbon hydrogen economy. And it's, it's not easy. Um, what The reason it's not easy is because you have to match supply and demand um, so you, you don't just produce hydrogen you have to have a user for it um, and, and you also want to grow the infrastructure around that dynamic so pipelines and storage so as you grow more supply and more demand you can actually balance the system now what, what i'd say is um, what, what we're looking at or the way i look at things rather is that, that you need the right technology at the right scale at the right time and what we can do with blue hydrogen, we believe is um, certainly in industrial clusters that are CCS enabled, is we can produce gigawatt scale, um, unconstrained by uh, CO2 storage availability. And we can fuel switch many industrial users down that industrial cluster. So, for example, our h to h salt end project is a 600 megawatt blue hydrogen project. Um, it will fuel switch multiple users on the salt end chemicals park. That's over 100 years old, that park. Um, and that will reduce carbon emissions by about 1 million tonnes per year. And then we've got a project to step out, which is a 1.2 gigawatt blue hydrogen project, where we're looking at also creating a big demand in terms of the world's first 100% hydrogen power station, at Kidby Hydrogen Power Station, within this decade. But as we step out, we need storage and we need infrastructure pipelines. And the storage you need, because it gets more and more hard to match supply and demand, which is critical for commercial viability. But ultimately, what we then want to do when we have green hydrogen projects across Europe, um, some announced, some unannounced, incidentally, um, and what we want to be able to do is justify that infrastructure, justify the storage, justify some big off-takers, and then facilitate more and more green hydrogen into that system over time. So it's a kind of two-prong approach, which will allow us to get, to get scale and foundations in the 20s, and then expand throughout the 30s and 40s. So that maybe following on from that, you know, uh, that that vision for uh, a low carbon uh, kind of energy economy and, and and some of the projects you've spoken to. What what are the other you know geographies of focus for Equinor right now? So, it's a, to be honest, that's a really good question because what we're trying to do is focus in areas where there's the right political environment to start these new nascent markets. So the reason that we have such a strong focus in the UK is because they have legally binding climate change targets. Um, they have agnostic advisors to government in, in the form of the Committee on Climate Change. They have progressive policies in terms of, so for example, a 10 gigawatt hydrogen policy by 2030, which is 50% uh, blue, 50% green, or 50% green at least. So, uh, But they also have business models and processes for actually scheduling projects, getting projects moving. But we're also actively involved in projects across Northwest Europe, um, so Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands. We have extensive project ambitions in Norway. Uh, we've just released some uh, uh, opportunities there in the in the last week or so. And then we've also got projects that we're looking at deploying in the tri-state area over there in the States. And I think, I think the key point that I'd probably say is the race is on uh, for the hydrogen economy. People have talked about it a long time, but I think there's a culmination of factors that make us believe we can realise it now. And I think that the UK at the moment is possibly politically ahead of the game, but the way we look at it is others are catching up and they're catching up fast. So it's um, we're involved in lots of different markets, in lots of different countries, um, all with similar ambitions. So it's a pretty exciting time, I think, to be in the hydrogen space as we see it. Yeah, and actually, Dan, I think, uh, you know, being rather modest, I think here, you know, you've played quite a big role in supporting the UK to drive on some of this. And I wondered maybe for our listeners, if you can talk a little bit about the role that you've had, um, you know, in trying to help with industry to advise the UK government on hydrogen. And, and actually, you know, from that perspective, where have they been most receptive? Where could other governments or representatives from uh, other countries learn from, you know, you think what the UK has done well? Well, firstly, Chris, thank you very much for the for the comment. Um, what I think, um, what I've done is is I listened to a lot of stories around hydrogen around ten years ago, um, a lot of reports and you know a lot, lot of kind of crystal ball gazing and stuff. And 
Uh, and if I'm honest, a lot of uh, waffle, as we say in the UK, uh, around tables and kind of then you went back to the same meeting and had a similar discussion. And, and what I actually find is, is useful is to put the hydrogen in the economy in the context of real projects so people can understand them, they can kind of get their arms around them and understand, well, what do we mean, do we mean by supply and demand and what do we mean by megawatt and gigawatt and what different end-use sectors are there and how does storage affect those different markets, whether you're going to flexible power or you're using green hydrogen or blue hydrogen or heat or, you know, so what we start doing is putting real projects together and then talking government through them. And in 2016, I was actually uh, seconded to government as a technical advisor on the future of, of gas, but actually really talking about the onset of the hydrogen economy. And then I've done a lot of work um, in the UK in the industrial clusters. For example, uh, we pulled together the Zero Carbon Humber Partnership with 14 major indu- industrials, looking at all sorts of different options of hydrogen storage, hydrogen pipelines, supply and demand. And then I also um, chair the UK Government Sector Development Working Group, uh, which obviously, Chris, you've joined us on before, um, where we've we've really tried to make sure that we can not only recognise the benefit of the hydrogen in the economy in the context of energy transition and low carbon, but actually in the context of value creation, long-term, high-paid jobs. And so that sector development working group, what we've been able to do is work with government to really try and make them understand the, the value chain associated with the, with the hydrogen economy and what it takes to lift it at scale. Um, and also that, that they should hedge the bets. You know, I mean, if the UK wants to take maximum advantage, it, it needs to pick a few winners, but it needs to stimulate the market as well. So, you know, maybe the UK in the future are not only exporting electrolyzers, but maybe HGVs, buses, who knows, and all sorts of other technologies we've not even thought about yet. So I think the, the key thing that I'd say to other governments is, Instead, of, what we have to do is look at projects on a project-by-project project basis, practicalities, constructability. How do we actually do it? You know, I'm traditionally an engineer. Um, how do we actually lift these projects? And then what we can do is negotiate and discuss with industry for how we frame the business models to create the economic environment to actually get the hydrogen economy at scale off the ground. Yeah, very interesting. I think I've slightly cannibalized Patrick's questions, which tends to happen on uh, on this one a little bit. I mean, Patrick, did you want to jump in here? I know that, you know, we had some interest in sort of uh, talking a little bit about Norway and also, I guess, why that makes uh, Equinor a little bit different to others. Do you want to pick up on that and uh, and go from there? No, but, but Dan, maybe specifically, and you've spoken to the UK's targets, but, you know, for instance, how, how, does, how does Norway's kind of... Um, you know, kind of CO2 reduction targets. How does that kind of drive Equinor's position or strategy around all of this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, Norway's, and it's an interesting question on a country-by-country country basis. I mean, you know, I suppose if we went on to CCS for a second, you know, between the UK continental shelf and the Norwegian continental shelf is over two-thirds of, of Europe's CO2 storage capacity. Now, in the UK, we know we have a lot of emissions and we have a lot of demand. In Norway, it's kind of the the other way around, where we we don't actually have a lot of emissions or a lot of demand. You know, there's only 5 million people in Norway. But actually, Norway can offer a great service in terms of this low-carbon agenda. And and probably the best example of that would be our Northern Lights scheme. And the Northern Lights scheme, maybe for those who don't know, will be the world's first CO2 import facility. And what that will allow is those areas across Europe and maybe even further afield who are landlocked, don't have access to low-carbon hydrogen or indeed low-carbon CCS systems, for example, if you're trying to decarbonize maybe steel or something, um, to capture their carbon and then ship it to Norway for us to store in long-term geological formations. But also in Norway, um, we, we've got great potential for, for example, hydrogen uh, hydropower. We've got um, obviously got the CCS, so we can produce huge amounts of blue and green hydrogen. So I think um, the Norway perspective is, and, and certainly the Equinor perspective, is that that broad energy company, that, that providing that service to Europe, both in terms of supply of low carbon energy, but also that service of maybe capturing and store, storing the emissions from those hard to abate sectors in the in the medium to longer term. And, you know, just talking about some of those projects, I mean, 
to what extent do you think that Equinor then is approaching this slightly differently to others in the space? Um, you know, we've just had on the podcast Shell talking a little bit about what they're doing in the hydrogen space, and we've had a number of other majors come on and talk about their plans. You know, just talking about the projects that you're involved in and the way that you you think about the role of hydrogen, do you see that there is a unique approach to Equinor? Would you say that there's, in some senses, the fact that there maybe isn't such a differentiated approach means that there's kind of a consensus <laughs> across the space? How would you look at it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a consensus would be lovely, wouldn't it? But uh, I mean, I mean, I think look, a, a lot of big big companies are, are kind of trying to get involved and, and play their part. I suppose I think the difference with Equinor is that first of all, we have the experience. Like I said, we're the only CCS operator in Europe, commercial CCS operator. Sleipner, we've been storing a million tons of CO two per annum for over twenty five years. Schnorvit, we've been doing it, uh, uh, I think it's 600,000 tonnes per annum for t- 14 years now. Um, we operate the Chalbogoda methanol plant, which has, has autothermal and steam methane reforming. We build the wind, etc. But I think what's important um, is I think the differentiator is that Equinor are involved across the value chain for the hydrogen economy. We can both provide the feedstock in terms of the, the natural gas for blue, and then the CCS element to make sure that that meets the low carbon hydrogen standard or the other renewables for green. Um, but actually, we, we are developing the hydrogen transmission system with our partners, National Grid Ventures in the Humber, which allows us to get more and more production to market. We're also developing the Albra hydrogen storage in the deepest geological salt in the UK, which is just around the Humber, where we also currently own natural gas storage. So utilising all that best practice and experience to expand that for hydrogen storage in the future, benefiting the hydrogen economy full stop, whether you're a supplier or a producer. But we're also involved in the downstream value chain. Um, we've, uh, we recently procured Triton Power, which is one of the big power stations that we're looking to fuel switch on the chemicals park. It's a CHP power station, so it's providing power and steam to the chemicals park so that we can really understand the best way that we can blend at scale and transition that asset to 100% hydrogen over time. And we're also looking to build the Kibi Hydrogen Power Station down there um, just past Scunthorpe in the Humber, which would be the world's first 100% hydrogen power station. And we're doing that with our partners, SSE. We've also got um, collaborations with uh, some of the big gas networks, for example, Caden, where we're looking at working with them to facilitate the UK's hydrogen town trial, uh, which is currently scheduled in policy to be maybe the late uh, 2020, so maybe 2027, 2028. So I think that the unique thing, and obviously we look at blue and green projects and really are trying to balance the system to allow as much as that to progress in the 20s as possible and then expand through the 30s. So I would suppose it's that that value chain element. If you like, the way we think about it is the, the hydrogen economy architects and really spending the time to, to sit with government and governments actually to explain how that works and not just how it works physically, but how it has to work from an investor point of view. That's a that's a great way to to segue into uh, in, into some financing questions. So so I suppose you know Dan, thinking about this, you know how how do you you know generally kind of look to finance these particular kind of types of projects, and 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 also you know speaking to that that government angle and, and engagement with government angle. You know, what's the opportunity in the market now, re, you know, developing those projects versus that requirement or expectation of need for subsidy? And how, how do you kind of view that lens? Okay, so so great. Another great question, actually, Patrick. I think, um, I mean, in terms of investment, it's it's firstly worth uh, mentioning that Equinor in our capital markets have, have committed to spending 50% of our gross capex by 2030 on low carbon solution and renewable projects. And, and that's tens of billions of dollars. You know, that's that's real commitment. But what we're trying to do here is create new markets, nascent markets. And what we have to do is is work with government. So industry and government, so not just Equinor, but um, obviously with government to create a commercial framework to make markets that currently aren't commercial investable. And when we talk about business models, someone asked me at a conference the other day, what do you mean by business models? And I said business models aren't just a commercial framework. The, the relationship with government and industry, certainly for the first big projects where you can help share the risk, you know, so if you lose an off-taker or things don't quite work as you planned initially, you, you've actually got a sharing of risk. 
And also you need to be able to incentivize the market so that the first users, so if you're going to be the first off-taker of hydrogen, if so for example, if you're an off-taker at Salt and Chemicals Park, you're not artificially penalized against your your industrial peers who actually maybe aren't taking the hydrogen, but there isn't quite a high enough CO2 tax price at the moment. So what you have to do is create a commercial model so that when we're talking about investing in these first projects, the investments are credible because there is a commercial environment created in a partnership between government and industry that allows the private sector to invest. And indeed, I was at a um, roundtable this morning with the CBI who represent the uh, businesses in the UK this morning, which had was full of investors who were actively looking to invest in these low-carbon energy projects, but obviously need to understand that the business model and the risk framework is appropriate to do that. So I think that the that this is one of the other reasons we see that the UK as being so much more progressed than some other regions, because they don't just have policies, they have highly developed business models. Now, we could expand that out further and say, so how long might a subsidy regime, which is kind of partly what we're talking about, need to be in place? And the answer to that should be not forever. So what, what we need to be able to do is, dependent who the initial off-takers of the hydrogen economy are, we probably need to provide some sort of incentive so that they're not penalised, as I've just said. But ultimately, what you'd like to think is that as their green products create a higher commodity value, as market demand demands green products, that they should have a competitive advantage and be able to say sell at a higher price. But then we also can start to look at as different off-takers start to utilise the system. So if we start to look at at-scale maritime, HGVs, potentially buses and other end users who might pay a higher commodity value but maybe need more time to organically grow, they will also help reduce the need for subsidy. And, and ultimately, you have this opportunity where you can actually increase the CO2 tax, which is what should be happening over time. But countries have to be careful because... If you're going to increase the CO2 tax and you haven't provided industry with opportunities to decarbonize, so that might be CCS or hydrogen economies, so they can fuel switch, then you run the risk of actually just shutting down those industries in your country and then going and offshoring, which one, creates a problem in terms of the jobs in the country, but actually probably creates a a global increase in emissions as they move to countries with maybe less progressive policies. So I think there's a combination of factors that can help us reduce subsidy over time. But the key thing is, as we set these markets up, is sharing that risk and creating the commercial environment so companies like Equinor can invest. And and if we can do that, we, we stand ready to do so. There's a question on that one, Dan. I mean, you know, because this comes up again and again in various different iterations. You know, uh, latest UK government forecasts are that we're going to hit 250% uh, debt to GDP ratio in the next, I think it's next 10, 20 years based on current spending profiles. And, you know, even the business models price support that's being talked about in the UK is in the low, you know, is effectively the electrolytic is 100 million pounds a year. Um, and I think the CCUS type funding is is less than a billion again, sort of cumulatively probably a few hundred million a year. In the context of 150 billion pound energy market in the UK, it's quite clear that the government, A, can't make a meaningful difference in terms of sheer volume of cash to subsidise. And even if it could, it's not in a particularly strong place to do so. So I wanted to put a question to you that an MP put to me, which was if we created a border adjustment carbon tax in the way that the EU's discussed and the UK's discussed before and said to investors and said to businesses like Equinor, look, you know, it's very simple. We are going to impose a carbon tax on imported goods and we're going to make it consistent across the UK with clear markers going up every year and expand the scope. And in providing that certainty that you're not going to be penalised, we are not going to provide you with price support because we'd rather keep that additional capital to actually deploy for those who need it the most, i.e. strategic industries like steel that we may want to preserve or fertiliser for food security or even addressing energy poverty. And, and we'd actually prefer industry to invest after that. How would you respond to that kind of question? I'd be really interested given your comments before. Okay, so so the, there's a lot to unpack there, Chris. Good question. Um, nice, easy one. I think uh, the, the first thing, if I could just pick up a, a few points. Um, so, for example, the £1 billion CCUS infrastructure fund that the government has, uh, has announced. We need to remember that 
that that is not actually about the business models. Um, that that is about potential capex support in the value chain for first projects. The business models themselves will require an enduring treasury regime, what we refer to as a, an affordability envelope, so that any sort of subsidy requirement over time can can actually be recovered. So that the the one billion, for example, if you were going to use a if you were going to build a two billion system and government said here's a one billion grant then clearly the subsidy regime to give you a return on investment for your capex infrastructure in that instance would be lower because you'd have a lower return on investment because you've only spent half of what it should have cost. So it's, it's almost like an interest-free grant. So so we need to be careful that we're not confusing the, the things like the, the capex stimulus with what is the business model and the affordability envelope. And the one area actually that's important that the government, UK government still hasn't actually announced yet is what its affordability envelope is so where we when we talk actually to government we we see great policy movement we see great ambition on business models we see great process but what we haven't seen yet is a very clear distinction of what the affordability envelope is to support some of them policies from treasury and what everybody's hoping is that that becomes a little bit more transparent in the near future so then to the second part of your question, I think this kind of um, CO2 carbon border adjustment tax, um, I think it's a really interesting idea. And I know it's been talked about. Um, I've not spent too much time thinking about it, so I'd have to keep the comment high level. But I suppose if, this, if the UK is going to impose a CO2 import tax associated with, say, the inherent carbon of products, then it, it has to expect that there will be a CO2 export tax imposed upon it for its own products. And so I suppose the, 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 the opportunity there really, if you really want to hedge your bets, would be if you can provide the low carbon systems for the UK's industry so it can actually create low carbon products, which is really a combination of hydrogen and CCS, you know, blue and green hydrogen for fuel switching and CCS for those industries that can't then the CO2 tax becomes really interesting for the UK because effectively it's difficult to compete or almost impossible to compete with a region that has low carbon systems so it can truly create low carbon products with a region that hasn't. So I'm, I'm probably not answering your question fully there, uh, Chris, but um, hopefully I'll give some, uh, at least food for thought maybe for the listeners. I thought you did very well, to be honest. Um, it's not an easy topic, but uh, good to get your opinion and perspective on it. Um, okay, thanks. Patrick. <laughs> Patrick, um, what was sort of the next bit you have from here? I mean, I guess the US angle must be always interesting for you. Yeah, let's let's get to that one, which is, you know, obviously there's an awful lot of excitement on the the uh, forthcoming uh, Department of Energy uh, FOA. Um, a lot of uh, questions, a lot of uncertainty still remains. But but I suppose, Dan, you know, what's Equinor's interest or uh, engagement there? And, and appreciate there may be some some things that might still be sensitive around that. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think... Um, I mean, it's fair to say we're very interested in the States. Um, I mean, if, I, if you were talking to my colleague, Steiner Ekas, who, who kind of does the same role as me, but, but in the States, well, more, more globally focusing because we're so much in the UK, um, we've got lots of projects going on in the States. And, and the, the main one that people maybe are more aware of, it's been publicly announced, is the tri-state area up there in Pennsylvania. And actually, what's what's interesting is we're we're kind of using a lot of our experience from the UK, which you know for me is incredibly something we should be incredibly proud of actually. And we don't just see that in the states. I mean, we have calls with um, all sorts of different industrial clusters across the world actually asking us how did we set up the Humber? How did we start start off with this type of scale of idea? And so in the states, we're using a lot of experience transfer actually to really help lift them projects quicker. And I think the, the states have got some good progressive policies. Um, I can't comment too much on the detail of the business model. Obviously, you need, maybe need to talk to Steiner on a, on a separate session about that. But I think the great thing is when the states decide to do something, they, they kind of get on and do it. You know, you can, you can see that over history. And so I'd come back to my comments from earlier. You know, the, the industrial cluster up there in the tri-state area, we're looking at similar to Humber, a parallel infrastructure system with CO2 and hydrogen transmission, lots of industry up there that you can potentially fuel switch. So, so similar type principles as in the UK. And 
and that's where I come back to why I feel particularly excited in the space at the moment. You know, there is a dawn of realization that we have to get scale, we have to get it now, we have to use all the tool in the box to get the climate change ambitions. But there is also an economic benefit, a first mover advantage. The race is on. And so what what I think is really exciting is that you, you're seeing a strong position from the UK at the moment, but it, it's fantastic to watch other countries, Germany included, uh, Belgium included, but certainly the states catching up. And I think if you look at our corporate ambitions, uh, Equinor by 2035 have said we want 10% of the hydrogen market. And we want to have deployed hydrogen at scale in three to five industrial hubs. And, you know, the, the places we'll do that are the places where you've got the most progressive policies, the recognition of what it takes in terms of public-private partnerships in terms of the business models and, and that kind of overall support from the industry. So I think it's a, an ex, a, certainly an exciting space to be in. So, Dan, look, um, really good to get such a broad range of different perspectives um, and, and comments on different markets from you. Um, I can see why Equinor likes to uh, keep giving you more and more things to do and certainly why uh, Bayes have found you so useful to have giving comments and advice um, through the government process. So thank you for making the time to come on the show. Um, before we let you go, do you have any uh, final, I guess, thoughts or reflections that you think would be important for our listeners to hear? It is quite a broad ranging group um, that cover kind of a mixture of of investors, developers, suppliers, policy makers. If there was something about the hydrogen sector you think that uh, you haven't had a chance to cover but you'd uh, like to share a few words on, then feel free to do so. Otherwise, we'll, uh, we'll let you get back to your busy schedule. Well, you should, you should never ask me a question like that because <laughs> I can talk for. But, um, no, I mean, maybe some, some reflections. Um, you know, I think the thing that we shouldn't underestimate um, when we set the hydrogen economy going is renewables was arguably easier. It wasn't easy. I don't, I don't want anyone to think that. But but you can trade electrons into any electric grid. They don't care where they come from. Hydrogen is much more nuanced. You, you can't, you know, it's a gas. You must You must manage it appropriately. And you can't just, you know chuck it into a gas grid or send it down to a different different system. So you really have to have a value chains approach. But you also need to look at the connectivity in the market. You need to back a few winners, you know, get some big production going with some big demand, so supply and demand that justifies the initial infrastructure. And the benefit of that is it is through those first big mover projects, it lowers the threshold for everybody else, whether you're a producer using a different technology, maybe maybe some we haven't seen yet, or whether you're an off-taker where you maybe can't quite have the, the pulling power to justify big infrastructure, but you can leverage the infrastructure that others are able to facilitate for you. So I think that's a key thing is look at it as a value chain perspective. We need to justify the infrastructure. That lowers the threshold for everyone. And then the other thing I'd possibly mention is just in terms of the international perspective on hydrogen, um, you know, maritime and, and maybe countries who, uh, who could potentially export and import in the future. You know, I think it would be remiss to say that countries with huge amounts of surplus energy in the longer term won't look to export that. And you've got countries like Chile, for example, where um, they've never had any energy to export. They, I think, have the longest amount of unbroken daylight hours, sunshine hours in the world. Huge amount of landmass, low population density. They're already looking at export potential. And in places like Australia, we need to remember um, that in Australia, they produce five times more energy than they consume. They are a mass exporter of energy, predominantly coal, gas and uranium. And I think, it, again, it, you know, if we consider the UK a little posted stamp that's absolutely teeming with people you know australia <laughs> to all intents and purposes there's kind of, kind of hardly anybody there for the landmass for the opportunity so i think in the what we have to do is we we have to unlock our imaginations to say that energy is a globally traded commodity t today and it should be a globally traded commodity tomorrow with with countries with the ability to produce surplus to provide it providing to those that that don't have that opportunity for various reasons, whether it's land mass, geology, geography, uh, anything you want to look at. And um, so I, I think it's reasonable to think that in the longer term, if we can create the market 
push for hydrogen in the first instance, such as what we've just talked about in the UK, big supply and demand, that will facilitate a longer-term market pull. Um, and so I, I just don't think we should... I don't think we should limit our imaginations in the hydrogen economy. The, the prize is there, and I think collectively, if we keep talking, keep innovating, keep discussing, we've got the ability to realise the ambition. What a better way to end the podcast. Well, Dan Sadler, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Patrick, you and Chris covered a lot of ground there with Dan. Let's start high level as usual. Any big takeaways, things that caught your attention, things you want to touch on uh, after speaking with Dan? Yeah, so so I, as you say, right, we covered an awful lot. And, and I think, you know, taking it back to that, that higher level, this is another uh, oil major, uh, traditional oil major, uh, talking about very tangible investments in a in a transitional uh, hydrogen economy, right? Like so, you know, Dan Dan spoke very clearly to the uh, <clears throat> the kind of large scale blue hydrogen projects uh, they're developing, and the um, the the kind of the role they play, but also the serious number of, of kind of green hydrogen projects that they're also developing, and and I think especially interesting the conversations that he he mentioned about you know the infrastructure build out and also. A little bit about the financing and subsidy elements on it. So, uh, an awful lot there, an awful lot of ground covered. Um, but yeah, very interesting for sure. And what did you? I mean, let's maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, kind of talking about the challenges there. I think we talk about that quite a bit on the show. But let's quickly move to some interesting points he touched on around geography. I think. He's obviously Dan is obviously focused in the UK, and there's there's a good deal of investment from Ecuador on on uh, on UK soil. But did anything stand out to you uh, about his discussions around geography? I mean, maybe relative to you know what some of the other energy majors are are doing in different uh, different markets. So you know, Shell as a reference point, or what what stood out to you on that front? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say there is, you know, Dan Dan highlighted the uh, the positive kind of aspects that he's obviously dealing with in in his business case, you know, right on in terms of uh, the UK and the the policy engagement advantages that are kind of there, right? And he's interesting to you know the the fact that he mentioned that there are other territories that are catching up quick, and I think this speaks to the the general point he made about. You know, we we're at the point in in you know engagement and conversation and planning around hydrogen where where there's a, a far bigger kind of belief generally that this is a this is a real market that's coming coming into play and that, that's a good thing for sure. But it also means that uh, that spread of of geographies. You know, uh, we talked a little bit about the the U.S. engagements and we talked about you know. UK very heavily, but also, you know, references to Europe and whatnot. So I think, I think what we're seeing here is, you know, a whole plethora of, um, of opportunities that are being um, kind of considered and, and, you know, the fact that they're actually developing and deploying projects, um, you know, indicates that, uh, you know, there is a, there is a very strong opportunity here to be realized, right? And, you know, it's multiple markets. It's not one on its own, um, and that's and that's a really strong point on geography that that this is going to be a, you know, regional plus you know uh, specific market opportunity for sure. Right. So one one of the things building off of that, and you know, it it varies from market to market. And one of the things that uh, Dan touched on is sort of the subsidy structures that come with first movers and early adopters, or come to first movers and early adopters in, in new energy technologies and new energy applications. What did you, what were your impressions there? I mean, did you, what did you think about Dan's take on that front? Yeah. And I think, I think he makes a, a fair point in particular on, on one, one particular piece stood out to me around, you know, the, the potential kind of uh, realization of those cost declines as we see deployment and, and, you know, not penalizing those initial uh, off takers for for helping move the market. I, I think that's a that's a very reasonable point, and it's um, you know it's where subsidy plays a role in terms of pushing pushing the market forward, right? 
Um, I think the other piece here, and, and it was one of the earlier points that Dan spoke to around infrastructure development and deployment. Um, and, you know, uh, this is the thing for, for moving and developing the market um, across use cases, you know, infrastructure is, is going to be critical. And having that kind of uh, strategic infrastructure investment and support will be, will be important here towards scaling that offtake and, and making, uh, making uh, hydrogen uh, available to those end-use sectors that, that might want to use it as a, a mechanism for decarbonization or um, as an alternative to their current kind of fuel or feedstock. So, um, you know, that support that he's speaking to, I think, makes a bit of sense. And it's, it's an interesting aspect of the kind of challenge we have here of making sure that people don't hold off on developing and deploying projects waiting for the costs to come down because unfortunately that that uh, that spiral uh, it leads to us not getting those cost declines realized so uh, yeah a challenge there but something something to be aware, aware of and something certainly it sounds like the there's some good engagement with for instance you know obviously the the kind of the British government on some of these issues already so interesting role for subsidy interesting uh, logic that you uh, you don't always hear from people around the role and need for subsidy yeah, so let, maybe let's build on that a little bit and, and not to pivot away from Dan and, and Equinor too much, but let's take that string and pull on it a little bit. I wonder what your take is, Patrick, around how governments and policymakers should be balancing those supply side and demand side components uh, You know, when it comes to subsidies and uh, incentive structures, right? So Taking an example that's probably a little more near and dear to to me and potentially to some of the work you do at at RMI, you know, the DOE has this hydrogen hubs program in the United States that's almost entirely, if not entirely, supply-side incentive structure and supply-side investment and funding. How do we think about how governments should approach balancing that with Okay, but we also need to help on the demand side. And, you know, one of the criticisms I've heard, for instance, of the DOE hydrogen hubs program is that it focuses so much uh, on supply side to the exclusion of demand side that there's potential for a glut of, of supply. Is, this, is that something we should be thinking about? And are other governments in your, in your view thinking about that a little bit more holistically? Yeah. So, so look, I, I, I don't quite subscribe to the uh, the glut risk idea, um, in part because you know very simply, you know if hydrogen becomes so available and you know it, number one somebody's going to use it right like there's enough use cases that are developed today that if 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 hydrogen is just hanging around somebody will be able to buy it at a price right. And whether that's clearing storage or whatever else, you know, there will be a market function here that comes to bear. Um, the other side of this, I think, too, which is worth noting about the DOE plan in, in particular is, you know, part of the requirements are are for uh, kind of showing that there is potential available offtake. And, you know, certainly there can be, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a lean towards supply or demand, but fundamentally there there is a a requirement for some level of uh, balance there for sure. So uh, so I think when we see the actual assessments and the FOA uh, is actually released, we we can adjudicate that a little bit more and a little bit better. But the other side of this is, you know, at some point in time, we've uh, we've got to uh, end the debate over the chicken or the egg, right? And, And to some degree, you know, providing that kind of uh, support for availability will help kind of demand side actors. To your point and and to the question around how you support and, and enable demand, I think I think there's kind of obviously two ways to do this and two different policy mechanisms that we've seen in lots of different places, right? Um, so the first the first aspect is to provide some level of PTC style effort, right? And, and we know that that, that that's on unlikely ground, I think, politically at the moment from from what I've last heard um, on the reconciliation efforts. But, you know, that drives the the pricing for hydrogen, particularly down fairly substantially, and therefore may make it competitive. And therefore, for a demand side actor, you're talking about a transition that actually helps your pocketbook, right? It helps your, your, your bottom line. 
So that's that's one side of it. The other is to provide kind of some level of uh, support for you know specific investment in in certain technologies or certain um, kind of uh, retrofitting kind of tax rebates or tax credits, right? So so structures like that, and to a great degree, I think we'll see some degree of, of both in different ways. But at the end of the day, you know, I think the first thing we should probably recognize here is that we're going to we're going to need an awful lot more hydrogen going forward. And and one of the ways to to drive that kind of cost decline on production side is to is to deploy. And then on the other side, one of the key concerns on the demand side is availability and security of supply. And if you can solve those those two aspects, you're you're a long way there. But Fundamentally, it comes down to the pricing aspect again and making that transition worthwhile on a, on a business case. So, um, yeah, it's a tricky question, no doubt, Andrew. And, and I think we'll see uh, a couple of different uh, mechanisms. And I actually now saying that out loud, one of the ones that I've forgotten is mandatory blending and mandatory inclusions, right? So we've seen, I think, uh, the government of India has, has, has talked about mandating uh, zero carbon or low and zero carbon hydrogen into some of the existing and use sectors precisely to to cause that market to come into being so there's also that end of the uh, of the spectrum of options around kind of policy action here is it fair to characterize your view as optimistic in the sense that and you can push back on whether or not that's the right term but that the demand already exists for even in emerging applications and that concentration mostly on the supply side component is justified on the basis that it, it makes it price competitive and the demand already exists and that we don't really need to push too hard on the on incentivizing early adopters or movers on the con, you know, let's call it the consumer customer facing side is that fair characterization uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have leaned as heavily as that. I, I think, I think what I'm, what I'm saying here is, is that at the end of the day, one of the drivers of demand will be pricing and availability and security of supply. So you are solving with some of this demand side constraints. And also, you know, on the other side, if you can show people a business case uh, and, a, and a pathway that's that's economically viable for transition, you know you probably are helping helping to move that demand side market forward. To say that the demand is there today, I think is 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 too strong. I'm I'm not saying that it. You know there are markets that are more advanced and there are markets that are less advanced, and um, there are actors in markets who have you know more advanced planning. But, you know, fundamentally here, people are going to have to buy the product. You do have to support that price, at least in the beginning, to some degree. And uh, and that that isn't a bad policy action for sure. There may be other mechanisms that help stimulate that demand transition, so, such as, for example, carbon taxes or ma- mandates on blending. But also, as I said, tax structures or tax credit structures that might help help accelerate that adoption. So... To, to say it directly, you can you can solve some of those demand side constraints by supporting uh, availability and supporting price avail- at, at availability. And therefore, um, I don't think it's picking one over the other. I think it's a combination. And to some degree, you are you are looking to uh, to kind of make sure that you're doing things that that actually support both sides of the equation, perhaps in slightly different ways. And, and we'll 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 wrap it up uh, we'll wrap it up after this question, Patrick. But I'm I'm wondering. So I you know the last two episodes we've we've had uh, guests from energy majors on. I think we touched on this on the Shell uh, Shell episode as well. But should we be should, uh, should we take it as as encouraging to see uh, companies with the history and the and the profiles uh, such as those of Shell and Equinor putting their weight and their money behind these sort of larger scale deployments that that they think that that demand is there and that this is uh, you know should we take this as an encouraging sign that these these companies are getting involved at this early stage in these uh, deployments? I, I think it's I think it's it's hard not to uh, to see value in 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 that that action right in in the sense of. Uh, you know, these are companies that have been 
engaged in the energy supply business for some of them, you know, hundred years odd, some probably even more. But yeah, I think I think the fact that you're seeing serious capital invested is is a, is a good sign. Um, could it be more? Should it be more? You can you can certainly make that argument about some of the uh, the, the capital expenditure uh, percentages, right, between exploration and and, and new uh, you know kind of uh, next generation uh, projects. But when people are spending money, it's usually a sign of expectation of return, right? And uh, in that sense, you have to you have to be uh, you have to consider it a positive. But also, you know, there are, you know, other side market pressures that we're seeing right now. And um, that's going to be uh, that, that, that kind of, uh, kind of uh, less certain kind of conditions for their traditional markets is also probably driving some of this too. And that's, uh, that's one I would expect that all, all probable oil majors would reject as a, as a premise. But I think you only have to look at natural gas prices right now to realize that there is a a real uh, volatility uh, factor kind of at play in in these markets in the next in the next kind of uh, number of years for sure. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and just take the positive spin there, uh, Patrick, to end the end the episode and, and say that I think uh, we should we should look at this as uh, as an encouraging sign that companies with the investment profiles and the and the time horizon profiles that that companies like Shell and Ecuador. Have when they are looking at market conditions and investments in, in larger scale projects, uh, makes it a, a positive and uh, optimistic outlook for the hydrogen economy uh, going forward and a positive indicator. Let's put it that way. But uh, I think we can, we can wrap up there, uh, Patrick, and uh, we will uh, catch you again next time. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Dan Sadler, Vice President for UK Low Carbon Solutions at Equinor, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 